This is a memorial service for George Mature, recorded August 3, 2011, at the Green Phoenix Institute in Eugene, Oregon.
So good evening, everybody, and welcome. Uh, as most of you know, we're here to celebrate the life of George Mature, our fellow practitioner, who died uh, a week ago Friday. This, uh, this little uh, area of celebration, there are photographs of him. His ashes are here. Uh, this is a computer-generated healing Buddha that he uh, did before, while he's still in the capacity to do that. So it's one of his last um, artistic expressions. <clears throat> the format's going to be this. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of how he came to the center. And then Jim, who's one of the people who knew him the best, is going to talk a little bit more about him. And then if anybody wants to come up and share some memories of him or read a poem or sing a song or whatever you want to do, uh, you're welcome. We, I would ask you to come up here because there's a little recorder. And we're recording this, and that way we'll get a nice, strong signal. And uh, we're going to offer it to his family uh, if they're interested, and we're going to keep one from the library. So anybody here could uh, check it out and uh, listen to it and so forth. <coughs> so uh, George... I think I'm the first one who, from the center who met George. Well, actually, that's not quite true. At the time, there was a woman here named Ani, and she had met him somehow. I don't know how. And he was uh, at Green Valley, where he spent all the time we knew him. Uh, and she said there was this guy with ALS, which I knew almost nothing about, and she explained the condition he was in and that he was interested in learning meditation. And would I be interested in going out and talking to him about it? And I said, yes, certainly. So I think it was Tom McFarlane and I went out there, and they wheeled him outside. And in those days, he could still communicate quite well with a plastic board that had, it was a clear plastic board, and it had uh, letters of the alphabet written on it. So he could ask a question by pointing his eyes, his gaze, at a letter of an alphabet, and he could pick out the question. And uh, it was a little cumbersome, but you got used to it. And, uh, and I never actually learned the board because I wanted to really focus on George. And so other people, uh, and I have to thank them all who've done this, uh, acted as kind of uh, interpreters or translators or whatever. But um, he, we started a conversation. And at, uh, he was very lively and very interested in meditation and so forth. So right away we started talking about meditation and consciousness and mysticism and the whole thing. This must have been, 19, it was a 2001, late 2001 or early 2002. I'm not quite sure. Jennifer and I were trying to figure it out. But at any rate, he joined the practitioners group in 2002, fall of 2002. And he was a regular member of the practitioners group. He would come, uh, and as he was up until the end, and he would also come almost all Sundays. So uh, he was getting a big dose of all this teachings and stuff. And... Uh, afterwards, especially on Sunday, uh, I'd usually stick around and, and give him a nice chunk of time, and we'd talk about uh, either the teachings or stuff that people had been reading to him or, you know, whatever. And the three things he was most interested in were uh, meditation, just regular meditation, uh, and then consciousness uh, in general as a subject. Uh, he had been a scientist when he was still uh, functioning, he had been uh, an expert on nuts, the chemistry of nuts, I think. And he worked in the Mideast and stuff. So he had a very analytical, very sharp scientific mind. And he was very interested in questions of consciousness and philosophical point of view and so forth. 
even said at one point that he wished he could write a book on consciousness. And then he was, of course, interested in death practices because he knew he was facing death. And at the time, actually, uh, the uh, prognosis, I still think it's true for someone with ALS, is five years from first diagnosis. And he was already two to three years into uh, his illness. So we were looking at death in two years or so. Well, it's been a lot longer than that. Uh, but he was, knew it was coming soon, or it's coming to all of us, but he, uh, he was in a position of knowing, really knowing it was coming quite soon. So we did a lot of uh, discussions and uh, practices about, uh, and uh, talk about death practices, and he, was, uh, he developed a death prayer. We tried different versions of it. One was uh, uh, the, just the word surrender, coordinate with his breath, but then he was having all this trouble breathing, so then he just practiced surrender, and then he practiced the intention to surrender without even the thought of surrender in case he would be, end up in a position where his mind uh, you know, could no longer think clearly, but at least he could have this intention of his heart and so forth. So I, I'm letting you all know that because in the last few years, of course, we had no real communication like that, only an intuitive level communication perhaps. But he did have a solid background, and I know he practiced a lot. He practiced this a lot. And he had the same frustrations, by the way, that all of us have. You get bored practicing you know, over and over again and stuff like that. So uh, he, was a, he was a practitioner, a good practitioner, because he went through all that kind of stuff. So I, I, you know, I don't know what was going on with him in the last moments. Jim was the last person, I think, to see him alive, and uh, he may say more about that. But I do know that he had at least a background uh, of that, and he himself had prepared uh, one of the other things that uh, came up during the time he could still communicate uh, fairly uh, uh, length intelligibly was uh, this business of choosing death. And he uh, asked about uh, physician-assisted suicide, which we had this law in Oregon. And I don't know, is Liz here? I don't, maybe she's not here tonight. It was either Liz or somebody came from Sacred Heart we got somebody from the Sacred Heart uh, Hospice uh, Connection, and they came, they explained to him that he was now, uh, uh, it was too late for him to take advantage of the assisted uh, suicide program because if you want to do that, you have to do it yourself. You have to have the muscular capacity to pull the lever or whatever that injects you. So I, I, I tell you this because it's something, if you're ever in that position or considering it, you might want to remember that. But he also had the option of having his uh, nutrition cut off, in which case he would starve to death. And uh, whoever it was, if it wasn't Liz, a woman from uh, Sacred Heart, you know, looked him over and he was, you know, he was pretty solid. And she said, yeah, it might take you a while uh, to die here, but that is an option. And again, uh, he, uh, I I'm sure he heard clearly what was going on and so forth, and he never asked for that option. Uh, now, it did get to a point where he couldn't ask for that option anymore, but at least that was something he was aware of. So this tells us something about uh, his, uh, his final state, in some sense, at least up to a certain point. You know, he chose to go the route he did. Then, as uh, most of you know, and, uh, and some of you who are newer, probably only met him in this condition, after a while, he could no longer pick out the letters with his eyes. He no longer had enough control over his eyes 
So we would get unintelligible messages. It would just be, you know, random sort of letters. And it, it wasn't, I don't think his mind was going, but his eyes were just jumping around and you couldn't, uh, you couldn't determine where his gauge was falling. So then for a while we worked out a system of blinking, yes and no. So we could at least ask some questions about yes and no. And again, he seemed to be, uh, you know, completely present with it. Uh, he would have trouble breathing in certain positions in his wheelchair and we'd push him forward or pull him back and then we'd adjust it and we'd ask him, is, is that good? And, and he could blink no and then we'd adjust this more and then he could blink yes and we could get him more or less comfortable that way. And, but it started to be the end of uh, conversations I could have with him about teachings and stuff like that. It was hard to uh, you know, pursue that in just a yes and no uh, format. So slowly but surely, yes, he finally couldn't even do that anymore. And I think all of you who knew him at the last years uh, or two, uh, he was, you know, a completely a shut-in. He couldn't communicate at all except by, uh, you know, a, a kind of sense you might have about him, but no verbal, any kind of verbal or uh, signal uh, communication. So that was the, how he came to the center and the history that I know of him uh, at the center. And then in the last uh, few years, since I've kind of retired from direct teachings, uh, most of you have been more in contact with him than me. I see him on community nights when he was here and so forth. Uh, but uh, if, uh, if any of you want to share what you, uh, what you did experience with him, uh, we'd be delighted to hear it, as I said. Uh, but first, uh, I'm going to invite Jim to come up and uh, talk a little bit. And then when Jim's finished, anybody, as the spirit moves you, please... But please do come up here so we can get this uh, this good signal. Ah, you got the board. H E L L O. New word. E V D. Start over. E, V, E, R, O, N, E. Period. So that's what we did. Lots of that. This is the board we used with George, and he would sit across from us. Some of you may not have seen it. And he would lock his eyes on one of the letters, and we'd be on this side, and we'd be able to see where he locked in. So. We'd say that letter, and then we'd move on to the next. And he had, a, if we asked a yes or no question, he could just look over to the right side of the board or the left side of the board here. And uh, I think this was actually a reject board. I don't think these letters were quite large enough for him. So. Anyway, uh, after a while, we got pretty quick at it, too. We, it's kind of like, you know, about this speed. And then we would guess, we could guess words now and then that, uh, you know, if he started, if he had three letters into a word, sometimes we could just guess the word and we'd get it. So, uh, so let me tell you a little bit about his life. I actually have some pretty good notes at home, and guess where they are? <laughs> at home. <laughs> so I had to scribble these real quickly. Uh, George was born January 5th, 1944, in New York City. 
And of course, he died uh, July 22, 2011. He was 67 years old. Uh, he grew up in New York City. Uh, his dad was a judge, and his mother, Helen, who many of you may have met, she was here and uh, lived here. And she was a model, and she was also a reporter for the New York City Daily. Is that, was that a paper? Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and that must have been in the 1920s or 1930s. So you can imagine how good she must have been to, to get a job like that then. Um, George went to a Quaker school. I don't know a lot about Quaker schools, but, you know, it's the friend. I think we have one here, the Friends School. And, uh, and he did quite well. I guess it was, uh, you know, they, his parents paid a lot of attention to his education and, and um so it wasn't, it wasn't like, uh, I don't know, like some, some of the public schools around there, he wouldn't have gotten as good an education as he did here. So he was real, real smart and engaged. Everybody that I've talked to, I've talked to his wife a lot this week, and she just constantly goes on how brilliant he was. You know, and we didn't get to see that, that side of it. He was not only brilliant, but artistic as well. So um, anyway, that's, that was his beginning in that friend school. And then uh, his mother would take him around to all the museums in New York City. And uh, the Museum of Natural History, I think, was his favorite. He just he studied so much science. I'll get on to tell you about that. But uh, So then, let's see. I don't know a whole lot uh, about his high school years. Um, Olya, his wife, did say that he uh, actually studied Egyptian hieroglyphics in high school. <laughs> And could actually, you know, work them, and uh, and that was a period in his life where he was also kind of artistic because he did it. And I think you say it this way: a Syrian relief in plaster, and it was must have been impressive enough because the high school kept it. So, but I, I didn't know any part of George's artistic side. You know, there was just so much science going on every time I was with him. Uh, so jump ahead. Not sure, you know, all what happened in high school besides that. Um, 1964, New York University, uh, studying philosophy and chemistry. Uh, that was the year he met Olya, his wife. They married two years later in 1966. So I'm a little confused about whether he got his master's in chemistry from New York University or the University of Pennsylvania because he also did go there. And uh, I, I have a feeling it was University of Pennsylvania that he got a master's in chemistry. Um, let's see, from there, yeah, he wasn't done yet. He came to the U of O. And I think we had always heard that he had a degree in like microbiology. Well, his wife kept saying genetic engineering. So how that all relates, I don't know. Anyway, I think his degree was in genetic engineering, PhD from the U of O. Um, when he came out here, he came out with his his wife's two daughters, and they brought his mother Helen out here. She was alone at that time in New York City, so they brought her out. Uh, she came out and uh, decided to stay when George, after getting his PhD, that wasn't enough. He went to the University of West Virginia and did postdoctoral work. So while he was there, uh, he had some kind of a research grant from the National Institute of Health, I think it was. And it had to do with finding a, a way to treat tumors by introducing something in, into the 
gastrointestinal system or something. I mean, just it was just a different approach to, to doing that. But, um, so he was uh, doing that kind of research there, and apparently it didn't pay very well. They paid a lot of money for the grant, but they didn't pay a lot of money for him to live. So. Uh, So little pay, go to Frito-Lay. Frito-Lay, Dallas, Texas. So uh, there he, uh, I think, what did they want him to do? Let's see. He was working in research, and they wanted him to develop like a super nutritional food that was easily packaged and very preservable that uh, they were hoping to market overseas to, you know, like uh, countries that didn't have a lot of food. So, well, I don't know why he didn't stay there, but uh, a year and a half later, Frito-Lay's major competitor, Wise Potato Chips, you know, <laughs> I think they're from these stuff. Uh, they, they wanted him. So, he went to Wise uh, Potato Chips, and that was in, let's see, it was in Pennsylvania, something like Berwick, Berwick, Pennsylvania. And uh, that's where he got a couple patents. I think some of you know that he was the inventor of the New York Deli potato chip. So that, was a biggie. that was a biggie for him, but I think they got all the money, not him. And then I think he told me one time that he had something to do with inventing the shape of the cheese corn, you know, that little corn chip or something. Like that. He had something to do with making the shape. And so that was also a patent. And then his wife said something about crunch, crunchies or something, whatever they are, I don't know. Um, so yeah, he was working there, rice potato chips for 10 years, and that's when they told him he had ALS. So, he, uh, his mother was still living here in Eugene, she made a bunch of friends. She was Norwegian, and uh, I guess there was this, there's this place, Sons of Norway, and she would go there and uh, had, had a good time. She was a beautiful woman, I think many of you met her. She was 90 years old, I think, when we met her or something. But I just thought she was so beautiful. You know, just, even at that age, she just carried herself well. And was just great. So, and, uh, and so dedicated to George. I mean, she was a sentinel beside his bed. Just every time I went to visit him, she would just be sitting there, just guarding him. And, and, and with somebody there all the time like that, he would have a lot better care. So. Um, yeah, so he came back here to face his disease, and uh, he was diagnosed in 1999. So, you know, we may have met him in, in 2001 or 2002. Yeah, two, two or three years, right? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, so then I guess it was in 2002 that uh, I sheepishly raised my hand one time when Joel asked for volunteers to work with George, you know. And I was scared. I mean, you know, here's a man that couldn't speak and, you know, just was very intimidating for, I, I talked to other volunteers, it was intimidating for them too. You, you might think it wouldn't be when someone doesn't speak. You think it might be more intimidating when they speak, but actually it was, uh, it was hard. But uh, Liz and I went out the first day, Liz Baldner, who used to be, used to come here. We went to the park next door and to the old center on Buck Street and we, just kind of tooled around with George, and he was laughing at all my jokes. So <laughs> it's just, it just went great. So, uh, 
um, yeah, so I was always curious what kind of car he drove. You know, I, I'm from Detroit, so I just have this thing about what do people drive. And I always put him in a Cadillac. You know, I was a, he drove a Cadillac. And he would never tell me, at least not that I can remember. So his wife told me yesterday he drove a dusty pink Rambler. <laughs> you imagine that? <laughs> That's not a Cadillac. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she told me one story that I thought was kind of funny, too, is that uh, he was so scientific that um, if she was having trouble sleeping, she would ask him to teach her some science, and she'd be out in a flash. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, his, both his wife and his daughter always told me that he should have been on Jeopardy because he's just, they say he just knew everything. You know, Roman emperors and just everything you can imagine. But he didn't know sports or what else was it? Uh, pop culture. And so when they told him, you ought to go on Jeopardy, he says, well, I would, you know, I would just freeze up when it came to sports or pop culture. <laughs> so, so he didn't do it. Yeah. So, yeah, I was with him when he died um, a couple weeks ago. And I was uh, feel very fortunate, and thanks, Mora. Mora contacted me. It's not always easy to know when people get moved around, you know. So I was fortunate enough to be off of work that day, and went right up there. And after sitting with him for about an hour, he, he passed away. And uh, it was it was very gentle, very you know, it was very sweet. He was uh, on morphine at that time, and uh, this is when I first went in the room. Is Breathing was kind of fast and shallow, and then it just slowed. slowed. And his, both his wife and daughter had called, and uh, they put the phone to his ear, so hopefully that was a comfort to him. So I think that's all I got. Um, just, uh, just to say the guy was a great scientist. He had aspirations to write a book, and... Um, at one time, he had thought about medical school, but uh, he had to support the family, I guess. So. Medical school. So uh, right now, his wife is in uh, Pennsylvania, and he has a daughter in New York and a daughter in Belgium, and one granddaughter. And he was the only he was the only kid. So. Tell what you're going to do with the ashes. Uh, <coughs> George's wife, Oya, requested that I spread the ashes uh, at the coast where uh, his mother's ashes are. So um, a few, I don't remember when she died, six, seven, eight years ago, a while. Uh, yeah, anyway, I'm not sure. Yeah, so uh, her ashes are near Yahats, and um, Bruno and Sylvia uh, went there to, to do that, and so his wife asked me to spread them in the same place. So that's pretty cool. I actually have uh, two sisters over there and a mother over there as well. So. Popular place, the Oregon Coast. <laughs> okay, thanks. Oh, I wanted to read one thing. Um, you know, maybe some, everybody probably kind of knows what ALS is. I just wanted to read this one little short paragraph from this ALS caregiver's book. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease, 
is a disorder of the motor neurons or nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord that control the action of voluntary muscles. For unknown reasons, in ALS, these motor neurons die and the muscles they control no longer function, gradually becoming paralyzed. So if anybody else would like to share something, please, but please do come up here so we can so get a nice clear signal. So, and I spent a lot of time with George. We communicated with this board. <laughs> That's going to cry. Cry. Always cry. Okay. H E L L O. New word. G E O R G E. <laughs> oh, I used to call him. B R I G H T, new word, E Y E S. Because when he smiled, his eyes would just go. So I'd call him Bright Eyes or Georgie Porgy, and his, his wife wouldn't believe I got away with that. Because <laughs> I guess he didn't like to be teased. Um, And I didn't know his mom, and she was really great. And uh, we had a service for her at the center, I remember. And uh, she had all the scrapbooks of George. You know, of course, when he was younger, he was the only child, and he was like her world, really, the moment he was born till the till the moment she died, really. And um, uh, I was going to say something about that, and I forgot what it was now. And then I remember when his wife came to visit, uh, when, when Helen died, and I got to meet her, and uh, she had an estate sale for Helen, helped her with that. And then uh, when his daughter, Alicia, came from Belgium with her, um, with, uh, her husband, Hasfandier, who's from Iran, and then their daughter, Sherazad, who was the most beautiful child ever, and George was just in heaven when they came to visit. That was really quite an occasion. And... Uh, the big occasion for that family when they came was going to taco time. <laughs> they lived in Brussels, and they were like intellectuals, right? I mean, they were lawyers, and, and, uh, he, and they, uh, taco time, big, big fun. So taco time was by Green Hill, Green Valley, where George lived. So we went over there and had some lunch, and that was, that was a big event for the family. And that was a lot of fun. And um, we had a birthday celebration for, for the little girl, I believe. Um, and there was a memory I wanted to share, but I forgot what it was now. It might come back to me. <laughs> um, so I have these, these poems, and um, uh, lately I've, I've been to a lot of services, and so I've collected these beautiful spiritual poems. And, and looking over these, I was thinking which one to be for him himself. This is a very interesting poem because it's by Swami Ramatirtha, who was, I just found out today, looked up an Indian Vedanta teacher who was only 33 when he died. He wrote this a uh, he wrote this a written he wrote this an hour before his death. 
it is said, with tears of joy dropping from his eyes. And the interesting story is that he then went swimming in the Ganges and drowned. And um, it is said that he wanted to, to do that, to pass that way. So it's kind of an interesting story in itself. So this is his, uh, the poem. Oh, death, go and strike my body. I have millions of bodies to live in. So I think of George living in millions of bodies. I will dress myself in the moonbeams, in the gauze made of fine silvery threads, and pass my time in tranquil rest. I will sing my songs in the form of hill streams and brooks, in the form of the rolling waves. I will move on. I am the soft-footed wind which walks on an ecstasy. I am the ever-gliding form which goes on as time. I descended as waterfalls. I made the nightingale sing. I knocked at the doors and woke up the sleeping ones, wiping the tears of the one, blowing the veil from the face of the other. I teased those near and also far. I teased you too. I go, I go, with nothing in my possession. I go, I go, with nothing in my possession. I have to say that I had tremendous respect for George. Um, I've always thought I could never do what he did. And yet he had no choice about it at all. So I felt bad when I went to see him, and I felt bad when I didn't go to see him. So it's a, it's a double uh, blessing that way. <laughs> Here's a little uh, poem by Isa on the death of his child, somewhere around 1800. Dew evaporates, and all our world is dew, so dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. Dew evaporates, and all our world is dew, so dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. Well, I only met George after he was no longer able to communicate. And uh, I sort of got snookered into being one of the people that was arranging for ride source for him. And uh, <laughs> I didn't want to do it. And But I was fairly new at the center. And by this time, people at the center knew that you could get the new people to do these things. <laughs> so, um, the person whose place I took, Miriam Reinhardt, um, she happened to be like the person who was coordinating everything for George, you know, like, you know, finding the people and training you how to do it and, you know. And so when I started, I said, okay, I'll do it, but I'm not taking that part of your job. I'm just going to do my night. 
And then Miriam left the center, and there wasn't anybody else to do it. So I ended up being the coordinator for George. So I was, like, getting just, you know, pushed into doing this. And when I first started, when you set up Ride Source for George to come, you had to be there, like, sometimes 40 minutes early. And so I'd be there 40 minutes early, and this was back on (coughs) Fox Street, and I'd be just terrified because I didn't know what to do with him or say to him or anything. And I used to just, you know, hope that ride source would, you know, blow it once again, forget him, and he wouldn't come. But he usually did come, and um, as time went on, I got more comfortable. Well, I don't know if I got more comfortable. I got less uncomfortable. And um, sometimes I'd bring things to read to him, and and he would mostly, I'd read to him, and he'd mostly be going like this. I mean, it was almost, it seemed to me like he was pointedly going like this. (laughs) And I couldn't, I, I, never having known him previously, I had no sense of, you know, what kind of engagement he was capable of or wanted or anything. So, um, I don't know, as I got more and more pushed into having to find new volunteers for him and take over because there weren't enough volunteers, and I ended up spending a lot more time with him. And then they started going to visit him, God knows why, but I'd go to visit him and, and, and you know, I'd sit there with him and be uncomfortable because I didn't know what to say to him. And, you know, I would ask people, you know, what should I do? And, and what do you do when you're there? And people would say, oh, I just, you know, I tell him about my day and I just talk to him. And so I'd go and I'd try to do that. And I just, I've never been very good at chit-chat anyway. So to have to go and just chit-chat with somebody who couldn't say a word was really uncomfortable. <laughs> so in the end, probably the last three years now that I've been going to see him, I'd just go and sit with him. And I'd just sit next to him, and um, sometimes I'd talk to him, you know. I mean, I got to where I could talk to him about, like, you know, I don't, I don't understand why this is going on in my life. You know, so I just tell him. You know, <laughs> you know, he he was great. He never criticized me or anything. <laughs> so, um, but I I want to thank George because I got to experience just being with him. In. I mean, there was, I didn't want to talk to him, and he couldn't talk to me. And so we would just sit there. And, you know, that's an experience most people don't have very often, I don't think, just being with somebody. And um, somehow we, I feel that we had a friendship through that. We would just, we would just look at each other sometimes because... That was the one thing he could do. And so we'd look at each other for 15 minutes sometimes, you know. 
it was kind of like uh, like meditating with another person. I mean, not just doing your own meditation and they're do- them doing their own meditation, but somehow we were doing the same meditation. We were... And we would get distracted. You know, I could see him get distracted or tired, and I certainly would go off into my little distractions. But, you know, and then you come back and, and be with someone. And uh, I'm very grateful to have had his friendship. I feel like I did. And... just for that opportunity to be with someone. So I'm going to miss him. Uh, George was one of my more important teachers at the center because my interaction with George revealed to me a number of aspects about my attitude toward myself and my attitude toward other people that I didn't really want to face. And um, it was difficult for me to admit to myself for a while um, that I wasn't very open-hearted and that I had a very little compassion for other people. Before I met George, I really considered myself to be somewhat compassionate. But in my interaction with George, I realized that, to say the least, I had a long way to go. A long way to go. Uh, When I first came to the meetings on Buck Street, I had no idea what this group was about. And I was neurotic, and I had been homeless, and I was angry. And I sat there in the meetings, not knowing what else to do, and I was wondering who this guy was who was snoring all the time. And it was like I was sitting there trying to meditate, and there was some guy there in a wheelchair who was snoring. And it just, it just drove me nuts. I just, <laughs> why, why can't this guy just be respectful and, you know, follow the rules that everybody else does and just, just I mean, cut it out, damn it, you know, why? Why, why is he snoring? Why does he have to do that? You know, And this is a long time before I was in. This is like a year and a half before I was in the first foundations group. But um, I was a friend with, of Liz Baldner. She was the one who actually introduced me to the center and asked me if I wanted to come to hear Joel talk. And I was quite taken with Joel the, from the first time I heard him talk. And uh, Liz was a, was a good friend of mine, uh, not a romantic person at all, but just a friend who would listen to me. And so uh, Liz called me one day and she said, um, I can't, she said, I'm supposed to take George off the bus today, but I can't make it. Could you go over and take him off the bus? And I had no idea what she was talking about. And she explained it. She said, just just show up there at a certain time and the bus will come, the right source, and, and help him get off the bus. And get into the, into the meeting room, and, and I'll be there to help. So I got there, and the bus came, and we got George off the, off the bus and into the room, and, um, and Liz didn't show up. But there were some other people there. I remember Jim was there that day, and, and he showed me a little bit about how to communicate with George. 
at the time I met George, he was still using the board a little bit. And, when I, and Jim taught me, and Liz also taught me a little bit how to use the board. But I, I was never able to really communicate with him that way, to be honest. But I was pretty much okay with the eye blink, and we got the eye blink okay. So the first time I met George as a person who I tried to communicate with, I understood why he snored all the time, and 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 I felt like shit because because I wanted him to stop, and he couldn't. You know, I mean, I just I went home one night and I just cried about it, you know, and I just I just felt awful, and then. I realized at that point what, how much I had to learn about myself. I mean, I couldn't, it wasn't like I had, I learned a lot to learn about George. But, but the most important thing for me was kind of selfish. <laughs> was what I have to learn about myself. And uh, every time for about three or four months when George would snore, I would feel that irritation come up, you know. Why does he have to be doing this? And then I'd look at that. And that was the first really deep lesson I had in my life about opening my heart. It really was. And trust me, my heart has a long ways to go before it opened. But that was, it was a little tiny crack in the door. <clears throat> so I'm really grateful to George for, um, for revealing to me all these things about myself that I really didn't want to face. And um, as, I, as, I, as the years grew on, uh, again, I, I gradually developed this respect for George. All I knew about George were the things I heard about him, such as what Jim mentioned tonight. So I didn't have any idea who George really was. And at the same time, I didn't realize I didn't have any idea who I was either. I mean, I was, I, my, I was more of a mystery to myself than, than George was to me. And so I had to start. I had to start looking at that, and I had to start seeing, you know, why? Why am I so? Um, why am I so cold? You know, why am I this rock in the bottom of the river? And gradually, in this, in this, uh, in this kind of interaction with George, my heart began to open a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. And I could say, with all the gratitude I have to all the teachers I've had here, such as Joel and Fred and. Matt and especially Todd, that I've talked to all of them about this issue of my heart opening. But the greatest teacher I had here at CSS for opening my heart was George. So, Tom, you reminded me of some stuff. the very first time that I went to the center, it was extremely crowded. And in fact, I think I was sitting on the stairs there when you come in the front. And I kept hearing this snoring or noise or something. I think I did think it was snoring. And, and I was sitting there just so indignant, like, what, what is that? That is just so rude. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. And then, of course, I see him afterwards, and I'm just like, oh, God. You know, I mean, I just felt so horrible. But um, I didn't, uh, I never, you know, really wanted to go visit him, just like so many other people didn't want to. And every time someone would mention it, I would just think, 
And then one day I, was, I came home from somewhere and I was sitting in my car and I don't know how it happened, but I just went, I'm going to go visit George. So I started going to visit him and uh, fortunately it was when Helen was still alive. So that was really fun because she was absolutely adorable. And um, so she'd tell me all about fashion and she always had on these great outfits. I told the same story when we had her her service. But um, I remember afterwards, when I, after the service, when I met Olya, no, I know, it was at, it was at the apartment when she was having the, the estate sale, and I was asking her questions about, um, about George and, you know, what he was really like and everything. And, and she said, uh, she must have known what I wanted to hear because she said, he was so cool. The first time I saw him, he came in all dressed in black. And I was just, you know, she was just like, oh, you know, this guy. <laughs> so I always loved hearing that about George because, yeah, I mean, we didn't know anything, uh, you know, it's so hard to know anything about him. And um, when I when I started going to see him, I, I think I was reading, okay, forgive me, but if it weren't for George, I would never have read that stupid peace pilgrim. Because <laughs> I, I can't, I mean, I'm sorry, but to me, she will always be the stupid peace pilgrim. Um, but I read that to him, I read him some other stuff, and then I started singing to him, because that was a lot more fun for me. You know, I'd just be in there just singing, and you know. And then one time, I was standing behind him, I was kind of massaging him and singing, and he started moaning. And I thought, oh God, what if he hates my singing? <laughs> what, if, what if he would just rather hear two cats mating than listen to me? You know, so you're so right, Tom. I mean, he just taught us so much about ourselves because you can't, I mean, you couldn't go visit George and really think about him. All you did was just think about yourself, like how you're reacting to, to him and what it is about you that's wrong or right or, you know, that's just terrific or sucks. You know, and so he was. He was just, he was a really good teacher. Um, so, as some of you know, um, I served for a few years as the editor of the Center Newsletter. And uh, <clears throat> prior to that, I got kind of drafted by Don Kurska, who was working with the newsletter, to take over the uh, interviews of practitioners, which was a feature of the kind of the previous incurrent. Well, it's kind of come back under... Maura's uh, stewardship here, but uh, we had this uh, feature with regular kind of in-depth interviews of selected practitioners with the center. And during that era, and I want to, I can't remember exactly when it was, but I want to say maybe um, within the first year or two that George had started coming to the center. And it was not my idea, I don't, maybe somebody here can Tell me whose idea it was, but uh, 
Jen, could have been Jennifer. Yeah, very well could have been. Someone each each issue would come along. I'd have to work up a list of possible you know people to pick on to interview them and you know get their little story and how they wind up at the center and so forth. And somebody said, "Do George." And I, uh, as you've heard a lot this evening from various of us, uh, my my first reaction was kind of trepidation, like, "Well." This is going to be kind of a one-way deal, you know. Uh, fortunately, I had some support. My partner, Ladybug, came along with me. We went out to Green Valley, uh, had the trustee board, maybe not this one, but... And uh, it was a really interesting process because uh, we each took turns, both uh, Ladybug and myself tried using the board quickly realized that she was more adept, so I, I just got to sit in the chair and kind of pose the questions. And I think the thing that we both came away with after that time, we maybe spent an hour and a half, two hours maybe with George, and uh, I came away thinking, wow, that was a piece. That was a teeny little piece. Uh, and had this really strong feeling like he would have wanted to sail out more, but he got tired. We both, we all got tired with the process. But at any rate, it did come, uh, it came out, it was published, and if you get on the web, I should have looked it up before I came here tonight, but um, go to the center website, look on, maybe the search engine for the website would just tell you if you put in George's name. You'll come up with this. It's kind of a brief interview, but I learned a lot about him. I learned about uh, his consuming interests. He did mention um, a real desire to uh, that science would look at this consciousness thing and get it figured out. He, he had great hopes that that would occur at some point. Um, and I do know that he was uh, very grateful for the opportunity. And as I sat here thinking about that day, I, I realized... It was maybe one of his, uh, you know, latest opportunities to communicate with a larger audience at all. Uh, most of his, you know, uh, last years of communication were just one-on-one -on -one each time. And this, you know, to, I'm sure somebody, Jim or somebody, probably brought him the copy of the newsletter. To, Look, here it is. You know, here's maybe he got it read to him. Uh, and I have to agree with uh, things that Tom and Catherine and Moore all said about this um, this function that George served for all of us. Uh, whether he wanted to be or not, he was almost like a perfect mirror of uh, all our self-absorbed insecurities and these thought loops and stuff. I mean, this is one of the big reasons we, we go on these silent retreats is for that discomfort of moving amongst a bunch of people but not having the privilege of, you know, hey, how you doing, kind of. Even the chit-chat, you know, we don't get to do. And uh, for him, it was very much a one-way process. And so I'm, I'm very happy that I got to, you know, help him give that little picture of his life to a bigger world. Uh, the newsletter circulation was, I don't know, five or 600 at the time, so, you know, he got it out there. And uh, I just want to express my personal thanks because I was 
ultimately one of the lurkers when it came to George, as opposed to one of the helpers. And I'm so grateful to all of you who who took it took it up and helped George in these years. And uh, for all he know, he for all we know, he was in a state of uh, sublime ecstasy for the last number of years. I like to think that. So I just had a brief memory I wanted to share. My 50th birthday party was in 19... No, not 19. <laughs> 2002. 2002. And uh, George was there. Um, so this was like about a year after he'd started the center, less than that. And and we had it videotaped. And so I just, uh, you know, in the last week I got out the tape and, and uh, watched it. And uh, so there's not a lot of footage of George on there, but uh, there's a picture of Todd working with the board with George. And, uh, and so it just kind of reminded me of how, you know, relatively functional George was when he first came to the center and, and all the work that Joel did with him and, and uh, everybody else. And so it was, it was a good reminder of, kind of how far he's kind of uh, lost all that ability. And the other, the other uh, picture of him was uh, my wife dressed up like Marilyn Monroe at this party and, was, and sang birth, a happy birthday to me. So as they, as they pan the audience, you know, everybody's kind of watching. George is just there kind of wide-eyed, <laughs> really enjoying the show. And, and I always remember, that he, he seemed to really like the female companionship when he first started. <laughs> well, I'm new here, and I saw George exactly twice. And the first time I saw him, of course, he was in the wheelchair, and um, then he was doing the breathing very rapidly, etc. And at first, I'm trying to meditate, and I wasn't very good. I'm still not that great at meditating, but I um, was thinking, oh, my God, how can I continue to do this? I just keep getting distracted. But then I was <clears throat> grateful because I, I knew that George was dying. Of course, I didn't know he'd been dying for such a long time, but um, I, I knew that he was dying, and I thought, this is good because it, you know, it really does focus me on impermanence. Um, but then afterwards, I asked Ani about him, and she said, oh, that's just George. And so I went up to him, and I, you know, I'm with hospice, so we always communicate with people whether they can verbalize or not, so I didn't really verbalize, but I was communicating with him, and um, I, f I felt that he was not going to live very long, um, but what really impressed me, and even now more, was that he was here, and, you know, so many people are hidden away and can't participate anymore when they're so uh, closed in and so ill, and I thought, I like this place. I like the fact that George is here. And now that I know all the stuff that you guys did and that you were there all the time, I'm just uh, very grateful to you all. Thank you.
Well, as a teacher, and having George in the class, I often felt that he was actually an extremely good teacher. In fact, there was really no reason for me to be there at all. <laughs> During some of my sessions, I would do a guided meditation. Although when George was there, often there was no need for a guided meditation. George was giving it perfectly. And you could hear all of this incredible, there was this gurgling. But you know, if you're just silent, you see, this is, this is really the, the beauty of, of having silence and then bringing someone like George in the midst of it. And everyone is there allowing their minds to be suspended somewhat, to be quiet, and to listen. And just in that process of listening, you discover there's something entirely different taking place. What you thought was just some guy in a wheelchair, just some, oh, that frightened you. You're just sitting there, and you're present with them. And there's a kind of an intimacy that begins to develop. And for myself, this, when George came to the center, I was in a very right place on my spiritual path. And he, he really gave me the opportunity to open to him. And it was this process of love, this process that, that allows us to go out of ourselves, that George fostered in drawing all these people in to be helpers. He was helping them. They thought they were helping him. He was helping them. So once, years ago, when he was first at Green Valley, I went by, and I had a poem by um, this guy, Wendell Berry. It was actually a poem that I had heard on a videotape that I'd gotten from the center. And I read it to him, and it moved him in a way that was just, no, it was exquisite. It, he came to tears. It was as though he was crying, but it was joy. I could feel it. And it was, that was kind of a connection with George that I never lost after that. And I was going to read you that poem. I actually found it in a book, but as I was, I, I closed the book and I was gazing at this um, poem on the back cover. And though it's not the same poem, I'd like to read it to you because it really conveys the sense of the experience of being with George in silence. It says, The yellow-throated warbler, the highest, remotest voice of this place, sings in the tops of the tallest sycamores. But one day he came twice to the railing of my porch where I sat at work above the river. He was too close to see with binoculars. Only the naked eye could take him in, a bird more beautiful than every picture of himself, more beautiful than himself, killed and preserved by the most skillful taxidermist, more beautiful than any human mind, so small and inexact, could hope ever to remember. 
My mind became beautiful by the sight of him. He had the beauty only of himself alive in the only moment of his life. He had upon him like a light the whole beauty of the living world that never dies. One of the amazing experiences that I would get with George was so many times uh, at the practitioner's group I'd be listening to him quite sure that he was going to die right then and there because you know he'd be gasping for breath, choking, you know, coughing, doing all this. And so it's really hard because you're thinking, shouldn't we be doing something? It's like, should, but then I go, no, he has a do not resuscitate. I mean, if he wants to die right now, we just let him die. And I'm just realizing that all I can do is just use that as my meditation object. And so how many times did people use George's snoring, coughing as a meditation object? You had no choice. <laughs> because if it was either use that or use your, your thought process. And actually his snoring was very peaceful, I thought, in, in a funny kind of a way. A couple of things came to mind um, listening to everyone. Uh, one is that the happy side of George. Uh, if you remember his laugh when he first came to the center, it was like an Eddie Murphy laugh. And you would get him going like crazy because you would joke with him a lot. And, and uh, when, when you heard that laugh and from a guy in a wheelchair with, in that condition, I mean, it's like, wow, you could laugh at anything. You know, it just it really, That was really helpful for me. And uh, I remember when I would visit him at Green Valley, he would see, he'd be like facing this window, and he'd see me arrive. And so I'd come in through the hall, and just as I was coming into his room, he'd be still be facing the window. You could just see this grin, because he just, he was like a little kid, an ex- expectant little kid, waiting for somebody to come in there, you know. And he was just all smiles, and it was just uh, that was a very heartwarming experience to have that. And then something else I thought about, you know, how difficult it is sometimes to uh, go in there and talk to someone that can't talk back. And so I would go in there sometimes and think, well, what should I talk about? And I thought, well, just tell him what's going on. And then I'd find myself telling him some of the not-so-good things that were going on. Mm-hmm. And then I realized in doing that, that George could be thrown from a car and end up in a ditch in the remotest part of Africa, as long as he could stand, he would be ecstatic just for that. And here I am complaining about it. About, um, I don't know, 20 years ago, I, was, I read this book by a channeled entity. Um, and somebody asked him in the book, what was death like? And um, he answered, and he should know because he was no longer had a body, so we assume that he 
knew what the experience was like. He said, death is like taking off a, a tight shoe. And that, that's just been coming back to me ever since George died because, man, he had a tight shoe. And I bet it feels great to not have it anymore. So. I was in the foundation group with uh, Tom McFarlane. And... Uh, Every time he keep asking me about uh, peanuts in the Middle East or nuts or something, and uh, I couldn't figure why he was. Uh, he said, "Saudi Arabia, do they have nuts?" And uh, I said, "No. I mean, not they grow them." But uh, then finally, we end up. It was about George. So actually, he was in Kuwait. And he was doing, uh, I think, some experiments with, I don't know if it was a company or a university. And uh, when uh, the thing that really uh, uh, got my attention, here was this guy who, like everybody mentioned here, you know, he's snoring and his difficulty in breathing. But I never was in front of him. But at that time, uh, McFarlane said, come and let's figure out uh, what, uh, what it is about nuts. You know. So it was uh, about peanuts in Kuwait. And the moment we've, it was figured out, all of a sudden he was let up. And it was for me, it was, you know, how, this guy is already, you know, it's, it was amazing. The way he, here he is, quiet, and yet... Suddenly, he just, it's almost like a, a thousand volts come through him, you know. And uh, so every time I see him, I, I, uh, I say, how are you doing, bro? Then he just reacts the same way, you know. <laughs> and I didn't know, I would suspect he was, here's a, a Middle Eastern guy uh, talking like a hippie or something. Like <laughs> because he has that, you know. And, uh, yeah, I'm grateful to hear what everybody have done and gone to his place to visit. And uh, I must admit, I do regret that I didn't have that chance. And uh, the teaching that everybody mentioned, uh, Catherine and uh, Maura and Tom, and uh, it was the teaching still going on t tonight, actually. So... Thank you for sharing. This reminds me of the little story I wanted to tell um, about that. That uh, we knew that George was involved in research for snack foods, or maybe we might call them junk foods, but snack foods. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I don't know if his mother or his daughter told me this. I think it was Alicia, his daughter, um, that when they were growing up, he would come home with these large quantities of stuff you know, from the lab, and then have to eat it. And, <laughs> and they'd say, Dad, this is really terrible. I don't, I don't think you should work on this anymore. So uh, that, uh, I just had this image of you know, him coming home with bags full of you know, Fritos and those sorts of things he was working on. And, and uh, that always seemed odd to me because he was so clearly an intellectual. You know, I mean, I guess they only create junk food and intellectualism, which, of course, they're not. 
can go together, but um, he was so clearly very brilliant uh, um, and uh, and uh, and like uh, Abdullah was saying that when we were communicating him with the with the board, and it was kind of hard to get what he was saying. And as soon as we got it, he would just like Abdullah would say, like a thousand light bulbs. Like, yeah, you got what I was trying to say. Just imagine that difficulty in trying to communicate with someone. And they're stumbling over, well, this is a Y, is this an L, isn't it? You know, and you get it, and you go, wow! You know, he could just like, yeah, you got one, I'm trying to communicate with you, and I you know, communicate with you, and then the, it would all, uh, you know, it would all light up inside. So, yeah, I was really glad that I got to, to meet his family, too. And um, that, was, uh, that, was, that was really special. Well, I want to thank those of you who shared for doing so. Uh, you reminded me of things I'd forgotten, especially that kidding George in, in the early days. Uh, I used to kid him about his condition, which a lot of people were shocked about, but he seemed to really enjoy it. So, <laughs> uh, Several people have, uh, over the last few years, uh, asked me as a, a teacher, you know, they, what was the point of his life? I mean, it's so... It seems so horrible and such a horrible disease, and you know what? What's the meaning of it all? And uh, you know, when I was with my teacher Franklin Merrill Wolf, who was 95 and 96 when I was with him, every once in a while uh, he would say, uh, he'd sit in this big armchair there, and he'd say, "I don't know why I'm still here." He said he couldn't give formal teachings anymore. He couldn't write. He couldn't even record these uh, talks he used to record on this old reel-to-reel recorder. we play on Sundays at our meetings. He couldn't give talks at the meetings anymore. So he would just say, you know, I, I don't know why I'm here anymore. And, of course, Andrea and I and his other students would say, yes, but, you know, we value you so much, uh, Franklin, and uh, Yogi, we call them, and we're so glad you're here and, and whatnot. And I think this is a, a lesson for us when we look at George, first of all, we heard tonight why he was here. He was here for us. And we, uh, we might be in that position someday, where some of us are getting older, and some of us may end up in a place, hopefully not as, uh, as extreme as George, but where we wonder why we're here, and get uh, you know, full of uh, despair or self-pity or whatever. And we should remember that. It's not up to us to judge. We are here for other people. Now, it's reciprocal. They're here for us, but we're here for them. We shouldn't ask the question, why are we here? That's not, that's not our problem. We just be who we are and let other people get out of us what they can get out of us and go away with what they go away with. And then we can uh, get out of other people what we can get out of them and go away with what we go away with. But it's the wrong question to ask, why am I here? That's not a question you can answer. So I hope we take that away with us, having all known George and have an opportunity to see how rich it was for so many of us and how much we got to take away for and how much we, in a way, owe George. So thank you, George. So that'll be the end of our service here. And uh, there's some uh, tea and some goodies there. And you're welcome to stay for a while and chat a little bit. And if some stories come to you that you didn't remember and you want to, you know, share them and continue for a while, 
uh, that's perfectly okay. So until we see you all again, peace to you.